0: And we come this morning to chapter 4. If you're with us today and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you wave and get their attention, and they'll put a Bible in your hands. It'll be marked to our passage here that we're studying this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 4, the Word of the Lord. Now, as they spoke to the people, that is, Peter and John, The priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the High Priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them, that is Peter and John and the formerly lame man, they had set them in their midst, they asked, By what power, but why by but or by what name have you done this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed, done to a helpless man by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. And this is the stone which the builders rejected, which has become the chief cornerstone. nor is there salvation in any other, nor uh, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with him, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside, aside, out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it, but so that it spreads no further among the people. Let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. And so they called them and they commanded them not to speak at all nor to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said... Thank you for its uniqueness, not only in human history, but unique, Lord, in this hour of human history. We have heard so many things spoken, so many things read, and all in this last week, and, and all of it coming into our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, words, words, words all around us all the time, and all of them saying essentially the same thing, Lord, And here we come to your book that speaks of a life that we could never otherwise know apart from you, to speak of things eternal and spiritual, things that will outlive the heavens and the earth, things that give meaning and purpose to our life, words of salvation. Lord, thank you for your Bible. Thank you for this book. And we pray, Lord, for Acts chapter 4 and ask that everything that these 31 verses are intended to accomplish in the life of your followers that by your Holy Spirit those things would be accomplished today. We yield ourselves to you for that work of your Holy Spirit. We ask for it, Lord, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The book of Acts is a narrative, and so it's a flow of history, and so as we since we can't cover some of these uh, larger events that go on chapter after chapter, it's necessary to break them up in, in some kind of bite-sized pieces with which to study them. And so, the context of all that's going on here in uh, Acts chapter 4 is that a great miracle has occurred: a miracle of God at the beautiful gate of the temple in the city of Jerusalem, as Peter and John are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. God uses them to heal a man who has been lame from his mother's womb and strengthens and heals his ankles and his feet, and for the first time in 40 years, he is able to walk. This man was well known as he had been planted at that gate to beg for 40 years by all of the people that came and went uh, in the area of the temple each and every day, and when they saw him leaping and jumping and dancing and leaping some more, they all realized that this guy's been healed, a miracle has occurred. And they couldn't help but note that the man had put a kind of a death grip on Peter and John as a result of his healing, and so they uh, concluded in their mind that the miracle must have something to do with them, and we're told in the passage that in literally just a moment's time, thousands of people now surrounded Peter and John with the idea that they had performed the miracle. We know it's in the multiplied thousands because 5,000 men are going to get saved, is a result of the sermon that Peter preaches. And when Peter sees the size of the crowd that's been gathered together now around him and John, he realizes that what God is up to here is far more than simply healing this man of the lameness of his legs, as wonderful as that is, but that God has used that miracle to arrest the attention Of this very religious crowd in Jerusalem, in order that they might hear the gospel. And he stands up and he preaches the gospel to them, calling on them to repent of their sins and to put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of those sins and to receive everlasting life. And far from being offended by the message, 5,000 men on the spot put their faith in Jesus as their Savior. And here you have this lame man who's been made whole as well spiritually, made whole not only on the outside with his feet and his ankles, but made whole on the inside. Here you have 5,000 men who have experienced the greatest miracle that a person can experience in life. The greatest miracle that a person can experience in life is not the healing of our ankles or our feet after having been lame from our mother's womb, as wonderful as that is. The greatest miracle that we can experience is to put our faith in the name of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, His death, His burial, His resurrection uh, from the dead, to put our faith in that gospel for the forgiveness of sins and have the Holy Spirit come into our life. There are 5,000 indescribable miracles that have been produced in an instant under the teaching of the Apostle Peter on that scene And so here they are. They become new creations, a miracle of being born again. And then Peter, John, the lame man, and the 5,000, and all Jerusalem lived happily ever after. Well, that's how it ought to have ended. That's how the scene and the account should have ended. But it didn't end that way, and it never ends that way. And it's always an indictment upon the fallenness of this world. That so much good, so much virtue, so much God, so much wonder and miraculous involvement of God would provoke opposition in the heart of anyone, let alone so often the whole world against the message of Christ and against His doings speaks to the fact that this world that we live in is upside down and far away from God. So instead of a celebration occurring and breaking out, instantly. Here is Peter and John and the man that's been healed. They're quickly surrounded by the priests associated with the temple. We're told in verse 1, the captain in charge of security at the temple and the Sadducees. And these three groups represented the religious establishment of the day. And they, the reaction of this uh, Trinity, so to speak, to the very effective preaching of Peter, we're told in verse two, is that they were greatly disturbed. And the apostle Peter had touched a couple of hot buttons that they uh, didn't particularly care. They had a couple of hot buttons, and Peter touched both of them. in what he did there on that temple area, first of all, they didn't like unapproved people unpreapproved people speaking spontaneously in the area of the temple. And then second, they didn't like people talking about resurrection because the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. We'll talk more about that another time. And so they laid hands on the apostles. That is, they arrested them. They put them in custody. That is, they put them in jail. And, And so they spent a night in jail. If we obey God, and we live for God, and we obey God's call upon our lives, the Bible from one end to the other teaches that persecution and opposition will come. It always comes, and it's always an indictment upon the world that it does come against a child of God. And so often when it comes against us as Christians, we are offended by it. We are surprised by it. We think to ourselves and sometimes even verbalize it. But I'm a nice poison. Why would people treat me this way? All I did was a good thing. What did Peter and John do in the area of that temple that warranted being arrested and put in the slammer and opposed in this way? But again, the th- reason, the, the, the fact that things are so upside down speak again to the fallenness of the world that we live in and the veracity or the truthfulness of those first three chapters of the book of Genesis that speak of the creation of man, the fall of man, and then the rest of the Bible speaking of the redemption of man, that the world has fallen, man has fallen. Everything is upside down and backwards, and only God can put it right side up and put it facing in the right direction. The problem when we say, but I'm a nice poison, is that that's the problem. Because your changed life is bad advertising for the devil. Because it speaks of the miracle that God can do in a human life and the changes that he can make. And all day, every day, you are terrible advertising for him and for his propaganda and for his lies. The Bible teaches, as Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul wrote and he said, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And Paul made that a promise and declared that it would happen so that when it happens, we won't be surprised and we won't be stumbled. We must never, ever expect the world to treat Jesus inside of us as Christians any differently than the world treated Jesus 2,000 years ago during the 33 and a half years of his incarnation. And 2,000 years ago, they opposed him, they persecuted him, they blasphemed him, they shamed him, and ultimately they crucified him, though he was perfection in every way. And when we become Christians and we are forgiven of our sins and we're given everlasting life and we're received into God's family and we're made a part of the body of Christ, all of those things happen with this spiritual birth that we receive. But we also then become an active part of a very great spiritual warfare that will go on until the end of the age when all of this around us gives way to a new heaven and a new earth. I could wish that I would be able to tell you that once you become a Christian, everything becomes easy and effortless, and that it's a life that is absolutely peaceful and carefree, and that it's lived in a bubble. But it isn't, and you know that it isn't it's the greatest life a person can live, but it's also to be enlisted into a very real spiritual warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, and both of those kingdoms are real. Between the kingdom of God and be- between the kingdom of the devil, and that war is waged over the souls of human beings. There are only two things in this world that are going to outlive the heavens and the earth. And one of them is that Bible that is on your lap right now. Heaven and earth is going to pass away, Jesus said. My word shall never pass away. The only other thing in this world that is eternal and will outlive the heavens and the earth are the souls of every man, woman, and child that lives in this world. The great war that goes on between heaven and hell, between God and the devil, is not over power. It isn't over wealth. It isn't over money. It isn't over the material things of life. Neither side cares ultimately and finally about those things. That's just the prop. That's just the setting for the the great battle that is going on. What the battle is, is a battle for the salvation the eternal destiny of every single human being. And where God wants to take human beings in eternity is a very different place from where the devil wants to take people into eternity. That is the fight. That is the warfare for the souls of man. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, and he said, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And that's a real battle that each and every one of us are engaged in on a daily basis. In the first three chapters of the book of Acts, it's been nothing but uninterrupted progress. And we would almost get the idea there's no need to read chapter 4 and the rest of the way. All you need to do as a Christian is stand up and preach the gospel and thousands of people get saved. But, and now lest we begin to think that everyone's going to always be excited or always going to be grateful for our service to the Lord, we now come in chapter 4, to the use of persecution and intimidation in an attempt to silence the disciples. And all of this is exactly as Jesus declared that it would be. And he warned in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Maybe one or two or ten of us need to be reminded of that in the middle of what you're in the middle of here today. Remember the word that I said to you. The servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Later in John's gospel, Jesus declared, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers service to God. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. And the idea is religious people will do this to you, but they don't know the Father and they don't know me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes you may remember that I told you of them. After a night in custody in jail. Peter and John are then brought to trial before the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, and we're told exactly who they are in the passage, and we're told that for a reason. We're told that the rulers were there in verses 5 through 7. These were high-ranking religious leaders associated with the administration of the temple, There were the elders. These were the respected men among the Jews within their community. These were the leaders of the various tribes, the leaders of the the various clans and families within Israel. And the rulers and the elders together would have been the religious equivalent of our Congress, made up of the Senate and the House of Representatives. They were, in this ancient religious system, essentially the legislative branch of our government. Then there were the scribes who were the ancient lawyers of that day. They were the experts in Jewish law, the equivalent of our judicial branch of government, the Supreme Court. And then the passage speaks of Annas, the high priest in Caiaphas. And Annas was the former high priest who with Caiaphas had held the highest position within Judaism, that is, to be a high priest. It was the equivalent of the executive branch of government for us in the United States, the uh, the equivalent of the position of the president of the United States. And then there's the mention of John and Alexander and the family of the high priest, those who held various high positions at the temple area by virtue of being part of the family and then not only are these people gathered together but we're told something of the setting when Paul Peter and John and the in the lame formerly lame man are set in the midst of these people in this great room that was set aside for hearings such as this, all of these men would have been placed, the Sanhedrin would have been placed on a platform like this. They would have been raised up from the floor level of the room itself so that when someone who was accused against some crime against the law of Moses or against Judaism would be brought into the room, they would not only be confronted with the names and the titles and all of the uh, august uh, you know, and t- and, 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 and things that were attached to the names and the titles of these men that were in the room, but also these were all in an elevated place, looking down on who whatever was brought within uh, in that in that setting in order to be tried. And so Peter and John and the healed man are set in the midst. And the entire proceeding, everything about it, everything about the men who were there, everything about the setting, the entire proceeding environment is one that was designed to intimidate. And you put yourself in that scene and imagine as these two former fishermen from the northern region of Galilee, a very rural area in in Israel, they're brought into this setting and I think perhaps the physical equivalent in the minds of, of these. High officials would be in our day of bringing a wheat farmer from the state of Kansas before the President of the United States and the Vice President, not only in who they are in and of themselves, but in all the power of the office, and then to set them in the building of Congress and not only to be there before the President and before the Vice President, but also before all of the members of Congress, the Senate, the House of Representatives, the members of the Supreme. Court, and here they are, this Kansas farmer brought before all of this power, all of this title, in the intimidation of the environment. And this entire scene of intimidation has been arranged for a very, very specific purpose, not for justice, but with a very, very specific goal that is spoken of repeatedly over and over and over again in the passage. And it is the goal of silencing the disciples from ever speaking again in Jerusalem concerning Jesus, concerning his life, concerning his death, concerning his resurrection, concerning the gospel and God's offer of forgiveness and salvation to mankind through faith in Jesus. The question that was posed to Peter and John in verse 7 by this group is not an honest question that they extend to them, And when they had set them in their midst, you see, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? These religious leaders haven't called this great assembly together, all of these powerful men together, in order to learn more about Jesus or to give his claims a fair hearing any more than these same men gave Jesus a fair hear- hearing months earlier when He was brought before them early in the morning into that same room before that same audience and condemned an innocent man, the very Son of God, to death on the morning of His crucifixion. And believe me, these two apostles, as they stand in that room before these men, know full well what happened to their Savior just months earlier when He stood to be tried before them. All of this is weighing on them. They pose the question in the hopes that on the basis of Deuteronomy chapter 13, that Peter and John would give the credit for the miracle to someone other than Jehovah, someone other than the God of the Bible, and thus allow them to condemn Peter and John to death. For in Deuteronomy chapter 13, it declared that when a miracle occurred within the midst of God's people, that they were never to believe that that miracle was necessarily from God, but they were to investigate the miracle to, number one, determine the person who uh, was used to perform the miracle, they would ask him, in the name of what God did you perform that miracle? And if it was in the name of any other God than the God of the Bible, then they recognize that this isn't a miracle from God, but this is an attempt of the demonic realm or the attempt of, of some kind of a lying religion to pull people away from the worship of the true and the living God into something false. And so they asked, who would you do the miracle on who did you who performed that miracle? Who on the name of on behalf of what name? and then they would listen to the person who performed the miracle and they would listen to the teaching that they would then people would perform a miracle if they did they would then deliver a message or they would explain the source of the miracle and then the religious leaders would be very careful to listen to who was given credit or glory for the miracle and if it was anyone other than the Lord then that person was to be condemned to death because it was an attempt to pull God's people away from the worship of God into the worship of idols. And so this is the purpose here. They don't care about Jesus. They don't care about these men. They hope they're going to say something that will allow them to put them to death in the same way that they put their Savior to death to give credit to someone or something other than the God of the Bible. A miracle's been done. Now, who do you point us to as a result? Who will get the glory? And Peter, he knows an open door when he sees one, doesn't he? And he viewed that question as an open door, and he began to preach Jesus to them in verses 8 through 12. And the whole scene is really very, very serious, but it's very, very humorous in a providential way. Peter could not, if for a million dollars... For $25 million, for $100 million, if he pulled every favor and every string that he had and every favor that anyone owed to him, he could have never in his power or in his wisdom or in his authority or influence ever brought that congregation of people together into that room. And God has done it for him by getting, performing the miracle through him and getting him arrested. And so he recognizes this is what God has done, and filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 10, he declared that the man was healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom God, the God of the Bible, had raised from the dead. And he passes the test instantly of the Scriptures. And in one sentence, verse 10, he preached the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And then in verse 11, He then declared that their rejection of Jesus as the promised Messiah had been foretold by their own Scriptures, and he becomes bolder still in verse 12 when he called upon them to put their faith in Jesus themselves for salvation. You can't cram more Jesus into three sentences than Peter did as he stood before that group of religious leaders. The reaction of the religious leaders in verses 13 through 18 they couldn't deny the miracle, they wanted to, because the man who had been healed was present as well. And they couldn't, couldn't deny Peter's explanation for the miracle. And so they sent Peter and John and the layman out of the room so they could privately deal with this dilemma that they're dealing with. And they concluded there's no sense in trying to deny the miracle. The best that we can hope for is to stop this kind of thing from ever happening again by demanding that they cease to speak in the name of Jesus and that we demand that they do that under the threat of very serious punishment, the threat of beating. And so this was communicated to Peter and John in verse 18, and the response of Peter and John is recorded in verses 19 and 20 when they refused to because the command that was being given to them by man, powerful man, religious man, indeed, but it ran contrary to what God, to what Jesus had called them to do in the Great Commission. And so they respectfully declined. And after further threatening, verse 21, they released Peter and John. Their trial hadn't produced anything, any reason for punishing them. And in addition, they were up against the popular opinion of, of the people within the city. The whole city was talking about the miracle, and they realized that it was the, uh, the miracle had been done by God, and the effect of the miracle had the whole city of Jerusalem glorifying God for the miracle, again passing the Deuteronomy chapter 13 uh, test. And upon their release, verse 23, Peter and John made a beeline to their fellow Christians somewhere within the city. And they reported to them all of the things that had happened to them. Their friends had doubtless heard about the miracle of the man being healed, the preaching of Peter there, the 5,000 getting saved. But at that point, they lost any contact with uh, any information with what has happened to them and what happened there early in the morning. And this is all reported to them, the threats and the intimidation of the religious leaders as Peter uh, reports it to his Christian friends there. And their immediate response in verses 24 through 30 was prayer and essentially asking God to give them a boldness to speak Jesus' name and to speak the Word of God. God, give us a boldness to do these things that is greater than all of the threats and the intimidation of our enemies here that is intended to silence us. And they prayed and they asked God to do more signs and wonders so people would ask even more who did this miracle so they could preach Christ and the salvation that is found in Him even more and so that even more people could get saved. These people were not backing down. It's a beautiful passage. These early Christians, they were not going to be bullied into some corner by these religious leaders. And God answered their prayer in verse 31, and He refilled them with the Holy Spirit, and He gave them the boldness that they requested. And this passage contains a very, very important application to each of us as Christians, that the threats of men and their attempts to intimidate us into silence concerning the preaching of the gospel, the sharing of the Word of God, the sharing of the name of Jesus, must not only not be yielded to by us, but it must be met in our hour in human history with a boldness that comes from the Holy Spirit. In this scene of Acts chapter 4, is the very scene that you and I live in today as Christians. We're all very, very familiar with what it is that's going on here in our own life. Very familiar territory for any Christian who's paying attention, and I know we're paying attention. Because today, like never before in our nation's history, there is a concerted effort to intimidate and threaten Christians into silence concerning our faith, and increasingly, overtly, and even subtly, we are being made to feel that religion is a private affair, a personal affair, that we should keep it to ourselves, that it should never find itself into the public square. And the relatively recent reinterpretation of the separation between church and state going from a proper understanding of the church being protected from the state to the state being protected from the church has created a world of problems in the last few decades for Christians who are serious about their faith. And it's only getting worse the more time goes on. And it has really emboldened those who hate or are threatened by Christianity and its teachings in their effort to restrict and to silence us and we see it all of the time the intention of silencing Christians in every conceivable environment to remove any trace of Christianity from any kind of public setting from any place in the public square any voice within the public square in our nation and we're ahead. We've are got Christmas coming right around the corner, and so it will bring its new series now of stories of new places that nativity scenes can't be placed and crosses can't be placed, and the Ten Commandments have to be yanked out of new buildings now. Uh, associated with law and order and Christmas carols that can't be sung in environments they've been sung in for 200 years, and on and on we go, all of it being removed from the public square, all of it a concerted uh, effort to silence Christians and to silence Christianity. But this isn't new. It has always required boldness and courage to live the Christian life, and to be faithful to God's call upon our lives in every age. Earlier I mentioned that to become a Christian is to enter into a very, very real spiritual warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And we're given an early glimpse at this battle here in this chapter of how that battle was beginning to form and uh, what sides, what was the focus of attention by both sides, by both kingdoms as it relates to this battle and this warfare? And you look at this battle or in the early church here, and it's just been going on now for 2,000 years, but here in this early glimpse of things, in this battle between light and darkness that's going on in chapter 4 here, and we ask ourselves, what is the focus of this battle? In every fight, there's a focus. If it's a fist fight, then the focus is on the fist. If it's a knife fight, then the focus is on the knife. The focus is always on the issue that both sides recognize that this battle will turn on that thing. And whatever that thing is becomes the focus within the battle. And what is the focus of this battle? What is the knife? What is the weapon? Everyone is focused on in this battle in Acts chapter 14, in Acts chapter 4. And it's the Word of God, including the gospel and the name and the teaching and the message of Jesus. And you notice the focus of the religious leaders there in verse 18. The thing they wanted to come away with in all of this, they called them, they commanded them not to speak, and that word speak is repeated throughout the passage, not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus And the disciples recognize this as the focus of this battle as well. And thus their prayer in verse 29. And now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. This battle between these two kingdoms hinges on whether Christians continue to speak or whether they go silent. And both sides within the battle recognize it hinges on that, the speaking, the continued articulation and sharing of the Word of God and the name of Jesus. And the disciples recognize that this was an attempt by the enemies of truth and light to bully them and to intimidate them into silence concerning the Word of God. And what Christian alive in the United States of America that's filled with the Holy Spirit does not recognize the attempt that is being made to bully us and to intimidate us into silence. That the real threat, that is the real threat to the kingdom of darkness, the Word of God, that is the weapon that Satan has no answer for. The gospel, the name of Jesus, the word of God, the message of the resurrection, all of these things. He cannot fight against those things with any success. When Jesus met him, the devil, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry with those three great temptations, and he met those temptations of the devil with the Word of God, the devil had to simply leave. He has no answer for the Word of God. He cannot stand before the Word of God. His only hope to be successful in his battle is to silence the Word of God. Never, ever, ever... Take this kind of an attack against you when it occurs in your life as a Christian. This attempt to intimidate you and to bully you and to silence you. Never take that kind of an attack personally. Satan is not threatened by you and me personally. What we are and what we aren't apart from God. He could wipe us out in a second if we weren't protected by God. What makes you and I dangerous is the message that we carry and the message that we speak. It is the Word of God. And if we begin to take Satan's attacks and the spiritual warfare that he meets out against us, if we begin to take that personally, then that's going to lead us into all kinds of wrong decisions and all kinds of trouble. It isn't about us. It is about the message that we carry. It is about the Word of God and the power of the Word of God to save and to perform the greatest miracle that anyone can experience in life, a miracle that people's eternities and their eternal destinies hang in the balance related to that. When Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, their enemy his enemies came against him with a whole series of temptations to try to get him stop building the wall and those attacks of the enemy are representative of uh, devices that the devil uses against us in the work that God has called us to do as his people and one of the devices that the enemy used in order to try and distract uh, Nehemiah from his work was to begin to make personal ac- accusations against him. It began to, they began to spread lies about him. They tried to make it personal now, and Nehemiah didn't fall for it. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 8, he then uh, declares, I then sent to him, no such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. And Nehemiah very significantly recognized that they were trying to distract him from finishing the work that God had called him to do. The work is everything. The Word is everything. The church is the pillar of truth, the foundation of truth. The work is everything, not us, not who we are. We will come and go. God loves us. We will one day be in eternity, but here the work is the important thing, and the work that God has called us to as Christians is even more significant than what He called Nehemiah to, and that is the preaching. The speaking out, the articulating of the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the three greatest events in human history, and the salvation that is found in Him. I wonder if one day we might see it. I don't know. I don't think we'll see it, this side of heaven, unless God gives you a vision or a dream of it. But sometimes I think if we could only see the impact of the Word of God as it's being spoken, the impact of the gospel as it's being spoken, the impact into the spiritual realm, What happens in that realm? So often we look at the face, we look at the individual human being, and they either believe or they don't believe, and they can look with an interested face or a disinterested face, and we think that's the, uh, you know, all in all related to the power of the Word of God and the gospel. But what is it doing in the spiritual realm as the Holy Spirit gives it life and gives it power? The Word of God is devastating in the spiritual realm, and the devil has no answer for it, and he has no weapon that can stop the power of it going forth. And so it's no wonder that the devil attacks us with threats and intimidation. In order to keep the Word of God and the gospel in the name of Jesus from being spoken, the miracle of this man being healed was no real threat to these religious leaders. They could manage the miracle. What troubled them was the preaching of Jesus and the salvation that was found in Him. Let's ask of ourselves this morning, in the privacy of our own hearts, have we allowed ourselves to be bullied and to be threatened and to be intimidated into silence as Christians? Have we bought into the prohibitions of the enemies of the cross and thus the enemies of the souls of men accepting their proud and their arrogant demands that we live our Christian life on their terms instead of God's terms. How arrogant and bold and how brash the world has become and the demonic realm behind it. And then we find ourselves after some length of time. As we look at our lives, we realize that Some of us, we never share the gospel with anyone anymore. We never open our mouth concerning the Bible or the truth or a biblical perspective in any conversation that we're involved in. We come to realize that we are living our Christian life on the devil's terms and not on God's terms. We live in an age of appeasement. And the word appeasement, according to Webster's Dictionary, means to pacify, to buy off an aggressor by concessions, usually at the sacrifice of principles. You see it all over the place. How many nations in the world are attempting to find peace by means of appeasement, and you never win wars, and you never gain respect by appeasement. And how it's moved even within the culture, what's known as the cultural wars and the spiritual wars and all these kind of things. We must not, the cardinal sin within our culture is that nobody can ever be offended. Nobody can ever be absolutely right or absolutely wrong. This scares people to death today that such a thing could be true on any subject. And it's all appeasement. It's all hand-wringing. We're all afraid that if somebody stands up and tells the truth that everybody's going to be driven away from God and they're going to be driven away from truth and the body of Christ, it's just as easy for us to fall prey to the culture that's around us and to and begin to live in this culture of appeasement spiritually, again, to pacify, to buy off an aggressor by Sessions. and then here it is in that definition by Webster's Dictionary, usually at the sacrifice of principles. It always occurs in the life of a Christian at the sacrifice of principles. And the problem with the policy of appeasement is that you can never win a war that way. You can only lose the war. And we cannot afford to lose this war. There are too many people yet waiting to hear this gospel from your lips and from my lips. Do you know the only reason we as Christians are sitting in this room and we are not in the glory of heaven following the rapture of the church? The Bible says is because the fullness of the Gentiles hasn't come in. That there is a multitude of people yet For all of the propaganda and all of the big machine that tells us otherwise on a daily basis as Christians living in the United States, there is a whole world of people who are waiting to hear this gospel and to hear the name of Christ and will give their life to him when they hear it in the same way that we did. What is required to win the war that we're involved in a war of intimidation and a war of opposition is the very same, same thing that we see within the passage and the disciples praying for and needing 2,000 years ago. And what they prayed for is boldness. They prayed for courage. It has always taken boldness and courage to live this Christian life and every single chapter of church history. And we see this very thing in Peter and John and in the early church as they pray, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. I think it's important, sometimes we hear the word bold and we just think that we're going to head out of here and go to Baja Fresh or someplace for lunch and you're going to find the first sinner, put him in a headlock and preach the gospel to him. That's, that's not what boldness looks like. Not a Holy Spirit boldness always look like Christ. The boldness never means that we become arrogant or we become obnoxious or ill-mannered or we become the proverbial bull in the china shop that ends up doing way more damage than good. And a lot of Christians will read about boldness, boldness, and then about being come silent, and then out of some kind of a guilt will go out and do, you know, some force, some crazy kind of thing that does more harm than good. You notice when Peter stands before this council there in verse 8, he's the picture of politeness. He respects them as a people, he respects their position. He's not upset, he's not angry. He simply had a concern to be faithful to God and to be faithful to them in declaring the gospel to them. He had a love for their souls. The fascinating thing is, of course, we know that any of us can go to any person in the world and we can share the gospel with them. And in fact, we're called to do that. People can't be saved until they hear the gospel. But most of the time, we don't even need to huff and puff and... Blow the house down in order to do it. You look at Peter's two sermons that he preaches here already in the book of Acts, one on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 saved. Here, the sermon that he preaches associated with the man that's been healed and 5,000 more saved. And he doesn't huff and puff and do anything related to that. All he does in both of those particular scenes in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3 is he just shared to correct wrong conclusions that people were coming to about God. On the day of Pentecost, they had come to the conclusion these people are full of new wine. In the sermon that in the healing of the man that had been lame, they had come to the conclusion that he was healed out of their own power and righteousness. I tell you, and I know that you believe it too, but it's good to hear, a Christian can stay busy sharing the Lord all of our lives by simply correcting the misconceptions that people voice about God and stepping into the conversation and engaging in the conversation. In both of these situations, both these sermons, in Acts two and three, Peter preached or he shared, to answer the legitimate questions that people had about God and the things of God. And the day of Pentecost, they asked, "What could these things mean?" That was a good question. In the sermon and the healing of the lame man, they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened here. They all ran into in, the scene and this question is going on in their mind. What has happened to this formerly lame man? What's the source of the healing and the change? And Peter just simply, he knows that that's what's going on inside of them and he steps forward and he shares with him Jesus who was the cause of what was going on here. And a Christian can stay busy sharing about the Lord all of our lives by simply correcting the misconceptions that people voice about God. People say that I think that God is this, or I think that, you know, there are many ways to heaven, or I think that all you have to do is be good, and all of these things that people say. And then when they say them, there's that moment as they're said, and all of us know what it is to hear it, and we say to ourselves, Am I going to engage in that or not? Am I just going to let that comment go? I recognize it as an open door from God to begin a conversation about God to them, but do I want to be bothered right now? Do I need the aggravation? And am I going to choose silence here, or am I going to enter into that conversation? The solution that we're given in the passage is again in verse 29. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. And God will always answer that prayer by his Holy Spirit in any circumstance that we find ourselves in, in any conversation that we find ourselves in. And he will give us the boldness to speak for him. And we all know, again, that feeling where somebody says something and we recognize I'm supposed to say something here as a Christian. This is a God thing. God has opened this up at this moment. And we know what it is to see that, to hear that, to have that right before our eyes and say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to choose safety. I'm going to choose silence. I'm not going to risk the relationship. I'm not going to risk having it turn into some kind of a big thing. I'm not going to go there. So we know what that feels like, but we also know, and the passage is intended to teach us that at that nanosecond that that happens and we recognize what God is doing there, that we can lift up a prayer to God and say, God, would you give me right now the boldness to step into this conversation. One that, in and of myself, apart from you, I wouldn't bother with because I don't want to risk what I'm going to risk to be able to do that. And that the Holy Spirit will answer that prayer and give us the boldness. I think that sometimes we can think as Christians that, you know, if we don't possess this boldness naturally, that somehow we're second class spiritual citizens or that because we do have to pray and ask for boldness that, you know, we're some kind of spiritual lightweights. The Apostle Paul continually asked for boldness. He continually asked for boldness. The Apostle Paul continually asked the churches to pray for him, to give him boldness from God to speak what he ought to speak in these situations. When I look at the Apostle Paul in the Scriptures, I just think of him as just like, okay, he's naturally bold. He was just born into the world, you know, with get two tablets of the law of Moses in his arms, you know, and he had this zeal and personality. And I don't want to ascribe all of it to personality and strength of character and all, but that's not how Paul portrays himself in the Scriptures. He said, what I'm doing, what's happening to us when we read these passages in the book of Acts, what he did, how God used him. This was not natural strength or boldness or ability. It was a boldness that came from God, and he knew he was dead without it. He knew he would slip into silence without it, and he didn't want to go there, and he asked people to pray for him so that he wouldn't slip into that place. And that boldness that we see in Peter and Paul, all the apostles here in the book of Acts. Not natural. The apostle Peter, we know that it wasn't natural with him just months before in the same environment. He denied Jesus three times and would have denied him more if he'd have been given more opportunities. This is a new man before us. As I've said before, he's the poster child for the baptism with the Holy Spirit but also the poster child for boldness that is given to us at the moment. Peter was not naturally the man that we see in the book of Acts. He was the product of prayer and asking God to supply boldness to him, whatever was necessary in order for him to be faithful that God called him to. And God will do the same thing for us that he has done and did for the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter and all of the apostles. Over the long haul of our Christian lives, I think that each of us typically ends up settling into one of two extremes in this regard. And in the setting or an environment of intimidation, which is the whole world, by the way, each of us will settle either into a life of silence, ultimately, or a life of boldness concerning the things of God. There are very few people, in my experience, who settle somewhere in between. Very few people. And the book of Acts encourages us. It encourages, it entices us. And this chapter is intended, intended to entice us into the excitement of this life and to desire this for our lives and to let us know that boldness is just a prayer away in each one of our lives. And sometimes, and I'm very nearly done, by the way, and sometimes. We look at something like this and say, okay, I'm trying to keep a roof over our heads and I'm trying to put food on the table and keep the car operating and I'm trying to live for God and live for Christ and, and be a good person in the environment that I'm in and all this kind of stuff. And then I come to church and now you tell me that I've got to be bold and I've got to add this one more thing to my list that I've got to be as a Christian and I'm already about to be crushed. But that's not the way to look at it. Because within us, by the Spirit of God within us as Christians. There's a longing for this life. There's a longing to make a difference. There's a longing to see people saved. A longing to see people come out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. There is a longing. There isn't a Spirit-filled Christian in the world that doesn't read the book of Acts and smack their lips Hungrily for everything that they read in there and the desire to experience it ourselves. That's in us by the Spirit of God. And this passage merely reminds us that it's always required boldness to live this life, but the boldness is there, and it's always just a prayer away. And when we find ourselves in that little nanosecond time where we are deciding whether we are going to speak or be silent, and we know we should, be, we should speak, that we can call on God for boldness, and he will give us the boldness to then speak for God in that situation. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing mm-hmm. to know. Now, I could have, do a, try and do a Pentecostal prayer, have everybody stand up and and believe me, I love all those prayers and I love the Pentecostals. I'm not putting it down. I'm a Scot. I'm a little more reserved, but it's all inside of me. Trust me. There's an Irishman in there too, by the way. but we could close the service with a big pump up, and there'd be nothing wrong with that. But this passage and the truth of this passage and the testing of it and the experiencing of it and making it something that characterizes our life is not going to happen in this room necessarily, but it will happen tomorrow tomorrow. When you're at Costco or you're here or you're there or what and somebody says something, it opens up and you know this is where and I need to and boom, I know how to do that. God, give me the boldness and the words now to share your love and your truth here. And that's where this passage is going to get tested and brought to a fruitful place within our lives. This is way beyond emotion and way beyond having an exciting Sunday morning service, as wonderful as that might be. I don't know where you go to find that. But anyway, but this is something that's intended to become a reality, a daily reality within our lives. This world is trying to bully us and intimidate us into silence. And it is the kingdom of darkness that is behind all of it. And we must not accept or allow them to define what our Christianity is and what it will be in our lives. The Holy Spirit is to define that and the Word of God is to find that and God gives us the boldness to live that kind of life. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Hmm. And now, Lord, we pray that in the name of Jesus that you would confirm this your word with accompanying signs and wonders in our life. And we pray, Lord, that to whatever degree we have allowed family members and friends and whoever else in this world to define and to set the parameters of our Christian life that has taken us into a place that looks nothing like Christianity of the Bible, that you would just break that stronghold, break these definitions that we've accepted. Lord, we will not allow the world or the devil to put us in our place and to define these things for us when Jesus paid the price that he paid in order to allow us to live an extraordinary life, not only on our own behalf, but on the behalf of others. And we pray for a miracle of your Holy Spirit in each one of our lives that we will not accept the Christianity that the world says it will only accept from us. But, Lord, we pray that you take us by the hand in a deeper measure into the fullness of the Christianity of this Bible in your book. And we pray, Lord, that in the coming hours and days and weeks and months as we await your return, that at that little moment in time that all of us recognize where we are tempted to go silent but to know we should be bold that you would remind us to pray for that boldness and then to step into that opportunity that you have given us for your glory, Lord. We pray that that work of your Holy Spirit and that dynamic of the Christian life would be the product of our time in your word this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.